Inside the halls of American hospitals, millions of people find comfort, healing, and support. But for many doctors and nurses, this couldn't be further from the truth. This podcast will dive into the shadows of American healthcare to investigate and uncover the abuse, control, and political power plays that leave the very people responsible for our nation's health broken and battered. We're sharing stories of professionals in medicine that have experienced horrendous treatment at the hands of a broken system that does nothing to stop the trauma. As the Association of American Medical Colleges states, long before the Me Too movement, women in medicine have instinctively banded together to counter a culture that too often tolerated harassment. From systemic trauma to abusive power to the unspoken rules of cover-ups and corruption, Mandy Irby and Phoebe will take you to the darkest corners of healthcare in America so you can have an inside look at bringing humanity back to medicine. Sensitive content warning. This podcast will share details of triggering subjects such as sexual assault and workplace violence. So if you aren't in a space to listen, respect your mental health and tune in again at another time. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Pulse Check Podcast. I'm Hehe. Hey y'all, I'm Mandy. And today, you guys, we are diving into travel nursing, but more so we are diving into how do you take your trauma and the hurt and the atrocities that you witness in medicine and turn them into something actionable? How do you channel all of that heavy burden into something that is prosperous. And I am picturing right now a field burning down to the ground and then being able to kind of crop up that soil and something beautiful, really, really gross. So today we're chatting with Alexis, who's a travel RN. Alexis, welcome to the show. And we're really excited to hear your story today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'll just tell you a little bit about myself, a little about my background. I've been a nurse for the last seven years. I'm also a doula, been a doula for three years. Um, and I mostly traveled in like the pediatric ER setting. And during that time, I witnessed a lot of things that I felt very uncomfortable about. And as a travel nurse, I felt really like it was a, it was hard for me to vocalize that I was witnessing you know, anti-Blackness and unconscious bias and, and how to deal with those things at work. Uh, especially being an outsider on a unit. So um, I have like three, actually I have like five particular memories of, of terrible incidents where I just have really just changed my life, but um, three in particular with um, all with little black girls and so much compares to what we see in maternal uh, health with black women that it felt very, um, parallel in some ways. So the first, one of the first incidents happened and, um, and of course these are the ones that I've recorded, right? Cause a lot of things happened prior in my career that I witnessed and then chose not to remember because I couldn't hold on to them and work what, where I was working. So this one happened, um, in, uh, January of 2020 and I ha- was taking care of a little girl. She had sickle cell. Um, If you don't know anything about sickle cell, this is like a blood disorder in which, you know, these kids often are coming into the hospital for pain management, and sometimes they have to get antibiotics, they have a fever, etc. So it's very common that 
a child that has sickle cell will, will need to have an IV when they come in. So in this uh, hospital I was working at, they were excellent about doing um, some kind of pain medication for, um, for IVs, especially in triage. This is actually one of the few places where I've seen this, where they'll put LMX, which is a, like a lidocaine medication cream, to put on the area, they'll put in four spots so that with both hands, the elbow creases, it was great. I saw this like for so many patients and it was really helpful in, in um, being able to, you know, keep these kids from being anxious about um, experiencing pain because they sometimes didn't even notice. Anyways, this little girl did not get any, even though she came in with a fever, knowing that she was going to get an IV, I was very surprised. And then on top of that, no one, like I, I wasn't taking care of her. I walked in um, and took over her care as this was happening and no one was um, using any kind of spray. And I understand like the freezy spray, sometimes you can't use just because if she has a difficult stick, et cetera, it can make it even more difficult. But this girl is screaming like bloody murder. And so clearly she'd had like very traumatic experience around this. And I'm not sure why everyone in the room, because there are several people in the, in the room by the, by the time that I walked in, I'm not sure why it was so hard for us to acknowledge that maybe she needed a little TLC. Like we had a child life specialist who could have been involved. And this was probably like one of the first times in, in my career where it was so blatant because of how differently she was treated based on everybody else I had taken care of from that time had come in with this cream on their hands and she did it. And like, I just couldn't understand how did this get missed? There's no reason like you couldn't take the five minutes to put it on her as opposed to the kid who didn't end up getting an IV and we wiped it off. So that was one incident. And then shortly after that I had, and this is the same hospital. I had a two-year-old girl who came in with this huge abscess on her butt cheek, like huge. And when, when the resident and I were talking about it, we were talking about it as if, oh, this might not be just a sedation to like drain this abscess. She might go to the OR. And I was like, oh, really? She, she might go to the OR? I mean, it, it is really big and she's little and this is going to be an intense drainage. But I was like, okay, like I'm, you know, I'm prepared to send her to the OR if we need to. But I, I for sure thought we were going to do a sedation. So I go put an IV in, I got blood work. I actually went to go do another IV. And so PD Surge had to consult to see kind of how bad it was and what to do. And when I walked out of the room to do this um, from this IV that I was doing, PD Surge was actually in the room already draining the abscess with no sedation. They had given her some bursette, but she was clearly screaming. Mom was, could not be in the room because she was her daughter was screaming and she was outside of the room crying. And when I approached everyone about why this had happened, first of all, why no one had notified me, why like I hadn't been involved. They said, well, the attend our attending who was supposed to help with the sedation was too busy, was held up and PD surge, the attending for PD surge was downstairs and they needed to do it right now so that they could bill for it. And he couldn't come back at a different time even though she was going to be admitted anyways. This was huge for me. I was like, so because of a billing issue, which doesn't truly make sense because if she's staying overnight, this could have been done at any time. She's already getting antibiotics. We decided that we're just gonna hold this little girl down and cut her open. 
I'm not sure in any other situation where that would have been appropriate. And I don't, and if, I think if her mother had been aware that that was not like normal protocol, there would have been some serious issues. And then following that, there was like, this is all within a couple of weeks too. Uh, there was a 12 year old girl, also black. She did not look 12 though. I, you know, you read her chart and you're like, oh, she's 12, okay. But she's got a deep voice, et cetera. And I was really, I was working with this provider who I had a really great relationship with. And I was really shocked to see kind of this unconscious bias, right? So I walked in, this girl comes in for belly pain. You know, she is complaining of belly pain. We've done a lot for her. We've been given her medications, fluids. We've gotten labs and stuff. And she's still complaining of pain. And when, the, when I tell this to the provider, she goes in, she checks on her, asks her about it. And the provider comes back out to me and, and talks to me about how overly dramatic she's being. And on some level, I understand because all girls of this age are dramatic, but, but I've also seen like girls throw themselves on the ground because of pain during, you know, in this age group. And she was not by any means doing any of that. She wasn't screaming. She wasn't, you know, yelling. She wasn't moaning, none of those things. And yet she, all she was doing was acknowledging that she was still uncomfortable and that, you know, she didn't feel like she could go home. Fair enough, right? And I certainly wouldn't have thought that overdramatic, especially considering all of the things that I've seen um, in the ER. And she actually did come back with a white count and, a, and she had a fever. So I thought she was gonna end up going for an ultrasound. And what I really did not like that this provider did, although she, you know, I'm sure she has some qualifications in, in bedside ultrasound, I never have seen her do this for any other child. She gave a very quick bedside ultrasound and sent her on her way. And I thought that was really unprofessional because if this had been a white child who's, who was accompanied by their mother or father, this would not have happened. We would have sent them to ultrasound down the hall to, ha to have this read by an expert in radiology. And so I just, I felt super conflicted because I had worked with this provider. I had a good relationship with this provider and somehow this provider had unconsciously, you know, mistreated this little girl without realizing it was probably related to, to her race. And that, that for me was like one of the most eye-opening experiences because you can still have great intentions and still be doing harm. You know, like I know that this provider certainly was not aware of what she was doing, but she, she did harm. And so I spent a lot of time with that, with the, her mother finally came to, to come get her and take her home. And so I spent a lot of time educating the family about reasons to come back. And because I, I wanted to make sure that they came back if things did escalate at home, but um, it made it really hard for me to trust the opinions of that provider and work with them. So, and of course, like we talk about COVID a lot and the COVID pandemic. And so I actually went to New York to work um, at Elmhurst Hospital, which was a terribly hit hospital. And I hate to, I hate to mention the name, but it's also been all over the news. So I, people know how bad it was at Elmhurst. And I won't go into specific details about that, um, about anything that happened there. But in some very real ways, I saw these same issues that I saw with these three little black girls. 
I also saw with many patients there, we, we weren't dealing with pediatric patients. We were dealing with adults with COVID at that time, but there were several times where even though we were in a lull, we were not experiencing high volume in the emergency room. We let patients go because it was too much energy for the staff. Even though we hadn't had any other codes that night, we hadn't. And so on some level, I understand that was probably related to like some PTSD, but in, in cases of like hypothermia where the patient isn't warm enough to be pronounced dead, that's not that's not okay. Or, um, you know, th- there were, there were just quite a few incidents that I witnessed that where I felt, I felt like I had to document to cover my own butt because I felt like if someone found out about what we had done, I definitely feel like there would have been litigation. And You're so that you didn't work with patients as long as you think you would have due to the volume of death that was coming through? I, so I feel like, so we had a really few terrible months where people were constantly coding and we were coding people back to back. And then all of a sudden we had no patients, pretty much nobody was coming into the ER except once in a while. And so I personally feel people were traumatized. I, I felt after leaving that, ER, I felt traumatized about going to any code in like my, the next hospital I went to, and I didn't realize I was traumatized, but I think people were traumatized. And so that, that influenced the fact that we were very quick to call. Um, and what was interesting is we were very quick to call on the patients that we knew didn't have family, that we knew didn't speak English, that we knew that, you know, didn't come from here. Whereas the family, you know, when we had a family sitting outside waiting, that's a very different situation. And so, I, yeah, it's hard to excuse that behavior, but I can understand where it was coming from only because when I left, I, I, you should have seen how, the way I was avoiding the recess room. I, I regrettably chose not to walk in. I mean, of course, I, I'm grateful to be in a place that was well-staffed, but I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't put my hands on any more dying people. And I acknowledge that that was part of what, I was going through. And I also acknowledged that was what they were going through, but couldn't walk away. Whereas I, I was in a place that was well-staffed and I could say, I'm actually going to take care of all your other patients while you do that. So yeah, not that that's an excuse, right? Right. Right. Yeah. You know what this reminds me of? Manny, you want to say that again? Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Alexis. You know what this reminds me of is, so for anyone who doesn't know, before I was in birth work, I was actually in early childhood education. And um, if you work at a progressive school who truly is looking in the forward, um, you will learn about something that's called the pre-K to prison pipeline. And it shows how teachers literally starting in infancy, literal babies treat black and brown babies different than they do white babies and it continues through toddlerhood and and pre-k school and then obviously in elementary and high school um it's the same thing Alexis when you're talking about it starting with pediatrics I like felt visibly I felt it in my soul be like what the 
what is happening here? It's just so systemic. And I think the roots are so deep that mm, when you said, when you were talking about, I understand where it's coming from, but it's hard to excuse it. Yikes. So, mm, okay. So what did it feel like in those moments that you wanted to speak up, but ultimately kind of couldn't? Honestly, it felt, so I can say after the fact, like once my shift is over, I spend a lot of time crying about it. But in that moment, I felt a lot of fear because a lot of times where I'm working, I'm probably the only person of color, not always, but, but often a lot of the hospitals I work in, like they maybe, maybe have one other black staff and then it's me and, um, or it's just me. And so especially not really know, like knowing the people on the unit well and not knowing how, what could happen, right? Because I've been in scenarios or I've witnessed scenarios where travel nurses have been fired just for making one mistake. And so this is a lot more complex than calling someone out on their racism is a lot more complex than let's say making you know, a charting error. Um, and so I felt like very torn because I, at that time in my life, I was becoming very vocal about the things that I was seeing. So in my personal life, I was starting to count, call out racism when I was seeing it, but I was getting a lot of, of kind of hate and, um, you know, people, people were very sensitive about it. And so knowing that, knowing that people would, even if, even if I use like gentle tones and I tried to say like, I know you don't mean it, people would come to me yelling. And so knowing that, and then going to try to do it at work, I was like, I don't think this is gonna work out well. And I also knew it coming from a place where I also had an unconscious bias that I became aware of like maybe two years, three years prior to, to witnessing these incidents, right? Cause I had to open my eyes to be able to see what was happening around me. And I remember there was this day where, you know, I was working in New York and, and luckily when I was working in New York, the staff was pretty diverse most of the time, at least the nursing staff is pretty diverse. And so I was kind of coming into my own, A, accepting my own blackness, because that's not, not really something I had had an opportunity to do as a child, but also like becoming comfortable working with more black staff and more black patients and, and understanding that, that the system is, is really training us to, to support white supremacy. And I realized I was treating, I was treating two patients, a white um, teenager and a black teenager. And I realized when I talked to the black teenager, I used an irritable tone that I didn't use with the white teenager. And once I became conscious of that, I realized we probably all do this without even realizing it. And so on some level, and I know like the care that I provided wasn't drastically different, but that can really like, that can really damage your relationship with a patient. You're not, I'm not going to be able to de develop rapport with somebody I'm not talking to nicely. So once I kind of realized this, well, A, I apologized to that patient once I became conscious of it. Cause I, I mean, in that, I really realized in the moment and then I became conscious of watching other people do it. 
And so even though sometimes it can be so small, so minute, I just started to realize like we all participate in the system. And unless you're actively trying not to, you're, you're probably unknowingly doing more harm than you are good. And so it's really, it's, it's really forced me to come, become kind of an outsider as an, in nursing and just watch how dysfunctional our healthcare system is and how much it's not really truly for the benefit of, of black and brown bodies. And I'm not just, it's not to say that we certainly don't want black and brown bodies to, to seek medical care, but that they need an advocate with them because you don't know what kind of provider, you don't know how conscious your provider is going to be or the people that you meet. I hope that they're conscious. I hope that they're aware of, of all of the things that are involved in our healthcare system that contribute to oppression and systemic racism, but chances are they're not. And I know like coming from the last hospital I was working at, as much as this hospital was investing into diversity inclusion, I can tell you none of the nurses I was working with were doing the work. And every time we had a case of where a patient or a parent was calling out the racism that they were feeling, I was asked to step in. Jesus. And that was also, yeah, that was also not appropriate. And so I ended up leaving. I, I just, yeah. They call. Yeah, that was really frustrating for me. Yeah, yeah but I get on work. If you're not doing the work, you don't know what else to do. It makes sense. You're like, oh God, let's get in somebody in here that can fix this without doing- actually, yes, who's doing it for us. She'll do the work. She knows how to handle it. Let's just get her in here because you're not doing the work. Right. Yeah. Everyone else isn't. 99%. They're like, oh, this is work. Let's just. Yeah, we can off. skip this. We yeah. could just take, we could just sit through the, you know, whatever, check, the lecture. Check, check. And- yeah. So what was, I have a lot of questions. I, I also really love hearing you talk about this, Alexis, and I'm so grateful for you to be saying this to us and to our listeners, because it's, it, it feels so easy to hear this from you. And it feels like conscious versus not conscious, unconscious versus conscious, um, and you having your own biases and, and being vulnerable about sharing your own biases and apologizing to your patients and your friends and your relationships and your colleagues having biases about, you know, they're nice people, not biases, but like, you know, we think the best, right. Of the folks that we love and of our friends. And then to have that kind of slap back in your face and have to sit with that and almost lose or, you know, negatively impact those relationships. And you're being vulnerable with that. And, and again, you're doing the work for us. So thank you so much. It's, you know, as our like fragile, I'm white, so fragile whiteness, as I have been taught to have it, right? So if I'm playing my role, and someone calls me out or, you know, white folks playing their role or non-black folks, non-brown folks playing our role and we're called out, that instinct to deny, that instinct to react negatively, to cry, to feel hurt, to feel attacked is absolutely there. And you're making it 
like easy for us. You don't have to do that, but you're doing that. So, (laughs) I mean, I don't mean to do that in the sense that I'm not going to say the work's not hard, but I certainly myself have done the work and I'm comfortable enough to admit my own mistakes. And so I I hope like I'm setting a good example in some ways because we're not perfect. And I can tell you just because you're white doesn't mean you like I have brown friends who I've called out on their anti-blackness and they also don't handle it well. So it's truly uncomfortable for all of us. I certainly don't feel like I should be carrying the weight of, of anybody else's tears or drama, but I understand that I had to sit with a lot of uncomfortableness and a lot of grief. I, I like so far in my journey, like there was a time, okay. So I grew up in a, um, predominantly white neighborhood or at least for like my school years where I went to elementary school, middle school, high school, I was pretty much surrounded by white folks. And so the black folks that I did encounter were technically busted from the city, but my neighbors, like the people I got on the bus with every day were white. And I often would deny these girls my friendship, even though they were seeking like, you know, just friendship out of me because I felt like I couldn't be friends with them because I needed to kind of maintain my status, right? Especially as being a mixed person, like I needed to, I was constantly like forced to choose sides. I still feel that way sometimes. I was constantly forced to choose sides. And I chose, you know, having white friends over having black friends, not even realizing I could have both, but because I felt like they were, it would allow me more opportunities. It was gonna be a safer space for me. It would keep me from, you know, it would make me cooler, maybe. I don't know, whatever. Um, And realizing that and then realizing this years later that I wasn't nice to these little black girls around me and then going back and saying, hey, you know what? I'm really sorry because you probably would have been a great ally to have. And like having that conversation with girls who I grew up with and then realizing how important that, like I'm going to cry now, but realizing how important that was for both of us to have because there was harm done. They weren't trying to, like, they were just trying to be friends and like, you know, so, and I, and I inadvertently hurt them without realizing that I was hurting them. So it's okay to be vulnerable. We've all made mistakes. It's okay to acknowledge that we don't, we don't understand how these, these, how ingrained white supremacy is into our society and how much we all are part of it, including my father, who was a very dark skinned black man. He too had his own biases and I acknowledged that. Um, And so realizing like you really have to be an active participant of anti-racism to undo the work that has been ingrained with us, within us. Yeah, for sure. That's next level. That's next level. And when you said ally in the room and you said ally to those um, with those girls and among those girls in childhood, that theme is coming back. And you mentioned maternity care earlier and how this um, unconscious bias and this, um, this, this systemic racism in, in white supremacy in medicine is showing up tenfold in maternity care. And you mentioned when you were taking care of children that the mother was not present in the room, which was just such a big visual for me a part of your story because it's it's it like strips everything and and I 
take care of mothers in my care and they are the best advocates for their children. So when I hear that and I see that, I don't know if our viewers are like seeing what that is in their minds. (laughs) That is two animals, right? It's, they are, uh, they are a team. They are a unit, um, a parent and a child and to separate them. You are now doing something on purpose. That is, as my son would say, super sus. You have to question. And, and then what is that really hard work that happens when that's witnessed and it's not, it's, it's non-Black folks work to approach a parent that's separated from their child in the hallway and figure out what that situation is because that is a bad situation. And that is everyone's work. And that's really hard work. But imagine what would happen to that black or brown mother or a mother of a non-white child. Doesn't matter, really. A mother of a non-white child to advocate they're going to have maybe a different outcome than a white doctor advocating for that situation or a non-black or brown nurse or administrator advocating in that situation. So that's where like that really hard work, that's sometimes not even the hard part. The hard part is what Alexis just said is like going back and thinking, oh my gosh, I've been doing this forever. But when I think of the allyship and the advocacy and the, you know, our patients need people with them, people, humans alongside them the entire time that's outside of the system. So they can see, like, like you said, you have this different view of what's going on because us inside, this is how we were taught. So it's extraordinary work, totally possible, totally should be happening step-by-step alongside each other, but that's what we were taught. So to see something totally different, we have to continue to see it and recognize it and see it and do it and try it and keep talking about it like this. So we're like, okay, well, what would that look like? That would look like me coming up and talking and saying, we need to take a pause because even in a code, there should be no mother screaming in the hallway, not understanding what's going on with her baby. That's a hard period. So I have two questions. Oh, Alexis, did you ever see white parents separated from their children is my first question. And then the second thing is, how do you think it would have been received had you been a white nurse speaking up against what you were saying? Would it have been received well? Would it have been received better? Would you still have been, you know, kind of paid the price for it in whatever way that might look like because that's what medicine culture is? How do you think that would have changed the situation? Or did you ever witness a white person, a white nurse, a white provider speak up? I actually have. Um, I do think speaking up in general, regardless of race is always hard because really it's about the person who you're speaking to and not really about who's speaking up. Obviously, I'm sure it's easier to hear from a colleague that looks like you, but I've, I still feel like it's always hard to hear that you your behavior is racist just because most people are just really sensitive to that word. And um, so I don't think it would have necessarily changed the scenario. Also, I will say in that story where the little girl got um, her abscess cut open without any kind of sedation, there was a child life specialist 
who was very conscious of what was happening and she was livid and vocalizing how livid she was because A, her job is to make sure she's supposed to advocate for these children and we were in another room together. So the fact that she wasn't allowed to be involved in this care was, I think for her, just like like unacceptable. And she was furious that, that the PD surgeon attending would do such a thing solely for, for cost reasons, for billing reasons. But that's an example of they knew what was going on. They did that on purpose. She definitely, yeah, You right. were both not, not present. And that's, that says a lot. Exactly. And actually to go off this woman again, because I just loved working with her so much. And I do feel like she was an ally. And even though we never really talked about race, I knew she was very conscious of, of, of the things of, you know, of how she herself partook in white supremacy, but also like how it was part of our system. There was a um, little girl that came in from school because she was overly sleepy. Mom showed up right away. Mom suspected that maybe she'd gotten into an edible. In a state, weed is illegal, cannabis is illegal. So yeah, it could happen. It actually happens all the time, unfortunately, but she was like, probably that's what happened. So, you know, we're over here trying to get this little girl to pee into a cup so we can do a talk screen and make sure that's what's going on. But she's very, very sleepy. It ends up being like positive for cannabis. And she actually loses custody of her child like on that day. Like she actually had to be removed from the ER, which honestly I've seen like very few times. And of course, like, like I said, I've seen this scenario twice with two white families. I never saw them lose custody. It was more of like DCYF is going to follow up with you and not we're taking your child tonight or today. So I, I, I actually couldn't, I couldn't walk back into her room because I was so upset. I was crying. And so what I loved what the child life specialist did was she talked to the mom. She talked and, and like helped the mom kind of cope with what was happening, not because it was right. She wasn't saying like, this should be happening. She was like, this is what you have to do to get through this because we can't do anything right now. This is going to happen regardless of what I say, what your nurse says, all of those things. So you need to be brave and you need to be brave for your daughter and walk out of here and go get a lawyer and go figure out how to get your daughter back. And she walked her out and like held her while she cried. And because for, for real, we, they had called security on this mother asking her to leave. And I, like, I, like at all, I could not be involved with this. I could not be involved because I just was, I was so upset. I was so upset by the whole thing. I couldn't believe what they were doing. And I'm so grateful that she stepped in because I couldn't be there for this woman the way that she could. And she was, she was a true ally in that moment. That woman just needed somebody to help her anybody. And I, I know I couldn't do it because I understood what was happening was completely wrong. And in some ways it was hurting me too much to, to witness. And I appreciated her being there and being able to, 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 you know, support this mother and hold her and tell her that it was going to be okay. And that, yes, it was, it's traumatic and that it's unacceptable. And I mean, that's what allyship looks like to me because you're right at the end of the day, it's just about treating other people like humans. What if you were in that position? You know, all of us make mistakes as parents. 
things happen, right? But losing your child because they accidentally got into your own stash and you openly admitting that's probably what happened, right? That's a lot. Wow. And you, Alexis, saying, I saw so much hurt. I couldn't cope in the moment. I couldn't give anything. You're at fucking work. Yeah. You're at work. You're susceptible to what's going on. You as a human, we're talking about allyship, human to human. Like put yourself in someone else's shoes. Put your sister in there. Like if that were your sister, what, how would you advocate for them? You know, if that were your brother, how would you advocate for them? That's what we need to be doing. But, but what you're saying is some things inside of the healthcare system was happening and it was so wrong that you couldn't do that work. You couldn't give anything. And it wasn't because of, you know, seeing a hardship, like death and dying is really hard or cancer sucks or, you know, things that are happening that we're caring for our patients about that stuff is hard, but that's also why we're there to, to support folks through those really hard things, to support folks through those, um, those ED visits and to, to, to teach parents how to, how to, keep their children safe or to teach them how to help them cope through this tired day and um, help get the cannabis out of our system. Like what, as the nurse, like that stuff is hard enough, but then to see the system treating, treating folks in such a bad way that you're unable to cope is telling. Um, And, and the stories that you've told are seemingly everyday commonalities also, right? These are not, this was the worst case of this medical problem. No, these are not TV worthy medical cases. These are everyday human to human cases. And I'm really curious because I already kind of know the answer. What did you do next because you already gave us a hint that you left what happened with all of this yeah um actually the climax to this was when my dad died so my dad died and i um i ended up doing some investigation work because i felt like well his death was really sudden he threw a pulmonary embolism and i kind of didn't understand how it didn't get caught because he was kind of having symptoms and he had followed up with his doctor. And, and so really there was this like large gap between when he called 911, when he arrived to the hospital and the nurse, luckily the nurse at the, um, at the hospital he passed away at was really great. Let me see the code sheets. Let me kind of read all the reports. She was very receptive to, to letting me be involved. Um, and, and so that I could understand, I also showed up in scrubs, so I'm, so I'm sure that largely helped. Um, but she, yeah, so she had told me that they had been coding him for 85 minutes and that's not true because he, um, he left for the hospital 45 minutes after he had called 911. So he's on the phone for two minutes. I assume while he was waiting for EMS to show up. 
And then the neighbor saw him leave in the ambulance, which is why they called me to let me know. But he was alert, awake, sitting up, not looking great, had an oxygen mask on, but was looking around. So was still, you know, hadn't gone down by that point. But it takes eight minutes to get to the hospital. I mean, just on a regular drive in traffic for us. So why, so like for me, I was like, why was there this big delay? And why did you report to the nurse that you, he'd been down since you got there? So for, for me, I just, I, that was it. Like, I was like, I can't participate in this healthcare system anymore and I have to do something. And I really felt like at that point I was kind of involved in doula work and I was becoming really obsessed with birth. And as a woman, I feel really drawn to birth because I feel like it's such a transformative experience. And that's when I started to try to problem solve. I was like, I got to do something. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do something. And I was living in New York and I had a friend who was an app developer and he really came up to me and said, hey, why don't you develop an app? Like, do you think you could create an app around like this concept? Like if you're trying to, you know, help mothers um, deal with the unconscious bias and the um, oppression that they experience in the hospital, why don't you come up with an app? I was like, I don't know how that would work. That probably won't, won't work out well. And he was like, he said it to me again. And normally if people say to something twice to me, I, I listen. So it's like, I was like, all right, let me think about it. And so really like shortly after that, I started brainstorming and we started working um, like December, 2019. So December, 2019 was the start of it. And we worked all the way until March of um, 2020 and that's when the pandemic hit. So we kind of put things on, on hold and then we've really um, picked it up since, um, since like February of this year. So essentially what I've been working on is a website and app for women or I should say birthing people because it's not just for women um, to read and write reviews on their healthcare provider after they give birth. And what's unique about this app is that we aren't just measuring healthcare providers by your written experiences or what your rating of your, your experiences. We're also measuring them by, you know, how many medical interventions you received and what their patient populations look like. Because I think it's really important to know what kind of patients your provider is seeing, whether they have experience with people in your patient population and whether that's something you need to be conscious of when you decide to work with them. Because sometimes we don't have the option to work with with providers who look like us and that's okay, but we have to go in there knowing that that's gonna be an issue. And then the other side of the app is I really wanted providers to be involved. I want them to see these reviews. I want them to be able to learn from them because as a nurse who's been called out when she's not at her best, not, not treating you know little, their little kids as well as she should, I, re I was really grateful for the times where a parent said to me, are you okay? You're not being very nice today. And I appreciated that because <laughs> I didn't realize that I was burned out at that time. It's like, oh, okay. I'm, and, and also acknowledging like, hey, I'm sorry if I came off like rude or um, quit, you know, short or whatever it was. I didn't mean it. I'm just, I've been working 48 hour weeks for the last eight weeks and I'm kind of done or whatever it was, right? I need a vacation and I thank you for pointing that out. Um, but also, especially after COVID has hit us, right? After COVID has destroyed our healthcare system in some way, realizing that traumatized providers traumatize patients. 
and understanding that sometimes we're not conscious that we're traumatized. Like in healthcare, we witness a lot of trauma constantly. And sometimes we can't distinguish whether it's our trauma or their trauma. And we take it home with us without realizing it. And so how does that play out in how you provide care in the future with a patient who has a a situation that looks like this traumatic experience that you witnessed? And so also acknowledging that, because I don't want to throw, I'm not trying to throw providers under the bus. I, there are some really wonderful providers out there, but I do feel like we, we as providers can't thrive in the system and we have to understand where we're also like at fault and how we can provide better care. And then once we can understand what's contributing to what's causing us to not be good, good providers, then maybe we can start fixing the system so that we can thrive better, right? Truly, I feel like this app and website is really just the beginning of a huge cultural shift that we're about to go through. But I'm really excited to see what happens. We talk about that cultural shift that we're like on the verge of kind of on this podcast a lot. So we're really excited. I can feel the energy. This is awesome. Alexis, First, thank you for coming on here and sharing so openly and warmly and inspiring us to all do the work. You make it an inviting place that is not intimidating, but definitely very clearly lays out the issues at hand and exactly everyone's role in fixing it, right? So thank you very much for that. Thanks for sharing the stories that you shared with us. Thank you for sharing about your father and we're sorry to hear about your father. Thank you for sharing how that inspired you to leave healthcare. Thank you for sharing that you did leave the bedside, but not the work. I think that's valuable for us to hear, for our listeners to hear, because a lot of our listeners are kind of in that flux. Like you said, like COVID destroyed our healthcare system or highlighted parts of our healthcare system. Mm. Pulse Check Podcast wants to thank you for highlighting a lot of the details and the bias specifically uh, that you witnessed and saying, saying it for what it is, but also including your own experiences and welcoming us to include our own. You sound like the perfect person for an app that is can be hard to read you want to include providers and they're like uh yeah I don't want (laughs) to yelp I don't I didn't ask for a yelp review (laughs) and you're like come on in it's great we all get called out and it's so true we all get called out I want the listeners to think I am so inspired I'm going to apologize today Because what happens when we do that is we get really, really scared to do it. We think we can't do it. And very much in healthcare, we think we can't talk about things straightforward. Mm. We'll get in trouble. And we sometimes will. And calling someone out or calling things out is one thing. But apologizing for our own stuff can be a good start. And you inspired Mm. us, me, to think, how often can I do that? Because that's under my own control. And that's something that I can own. And that's a huge connection with other humans that I, I have control over. And even if I'm apologizing for a system problem, I can still do that and sit with someone and say, we're both in a shitty place 
because we both can't change this. And without dumping like, and I have a therapist and I cry at home afterward and like, I hate my job. <laughs> That's what would be going for us as bedside <laughs> professionals, right? I'm not going to jump out on someone else, but I'm here with you and I see the challenges and they suck. And I think that's really powerful. Like you do that. And um, the family life specialist that you shared with us about did that in a, in a really great way. Like we're, we are on the same team. Let's, how do we work around this really awfulness? So thank you for sharing those intimate details with us. I feel super connected to you and really connected to the work. I feel invigorated by the work. I want to go apologize, even though, Again, I think you so clearly laid out so many issues within the medical system. And this is exactly why this podcast started. So listeners, if you are out there and you want to review a doc on the BirthX app, you can go to www.birthxapp.com, E-I-R-T-H-X-A-P-P.com. And I just want to say thank you for giving me a place to, to talk about these experiences. I mean... I, I certainly have talked about them with people in my personal life and, um, and I've, I've been doing the work and I've been trying to understand like, how did I contribute to this and what could I have done differently? And is there a way I could have spoken up without necessarily experiencing retaliation? I'm not sure that there is, but um, I appreciate you using your platform to give me a space to talk and, and how important and, and grateful I am um, for, for you guys creating this space for me. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining in on this episode. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. We wanted to leave you with a quick stat and something to think about until we see you next time. According to a 2018 report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, the prevalence of sexual harassment in academic medicine is almost double that of other science and engineering specialties. This presents a serious danger that ripples into patient safety, clinical outcomes, and burnout, which leads to costly loss of talent. How much safer could medicine be if nurses and physicians weren't also battling sexual harassment day in and day out? If you or anyone you know has a story to share, please contact us on Instagram at pulsecheck.podcast. We'd love to share your story.